we continue with the ministry of God's Word, turn with me to the book, old book, Exodus, in chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5. Let's stand together once more for the reading of God's Word. Now afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So they said, The the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall on us with pestilence or with the sword. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, You shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men, that they may labor with it. Let them not regard false words. And the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go yourselves. Get where you can find it, yet none of your work will be reduced. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. Also the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as before? Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why are you dealing thus with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants, and they say to us, Make brick, and indeed your servants are beaten. What? But the fault is in your own people. But when he said, "You are," but he said, "You are idle, idle." Therefore I say to you, let us go and sacrifice. Therefore you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore now go and work, for no straw shall be given you, yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. The officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. Then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, Let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Thus far, the word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray together. Almighty God, as you are the one who blesses those who sow and those who water. We pray that you would bless now the ministry of your word in our midst, that it would be seed on good soil, 
And that with your blessing, it would take root and grow and flourish there. Lord, bless your word to go forth with a demonstration of the power of the Spirit, that you would be at work in us all, that Christ would be magnified, that you would give us understanding, and that you would build up the church, the temple of the living Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Spiritual warfare. It is that great conflict of the ages between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Oh, we look at the headlines and you hear of nations and rattling of sabers, as it were. But really the conflict is the spiritual warfare between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And it began in the Garden of Eden. This text is a record or a report of one of the many battles between Satan and God. But it is not a conflict of equals. That is very important. It is not a conflict of equals, as the record of Exodus clearly shows. Now, these events took place a long, long time ago from us, and yet they connect with our daily lives. I'm assuming you read the headlines. We're being told, it's a demand being placed on us that we must take up somebody's preferred pronouns, even if that is a lie. We must lie or we'll be canceled. People lose their jobs. People are being fined. Uh, that your business must serve all comers even if the services you provide are to those who are engaged in reprehensible and indecent acts. We're told that we'll be put out of business. People are losing their jobs because they love Christ. They want to obey Christ. Persecution has come to us in our day in this land. And we will be oppressed Unless God intervenes, we will be oppressed more and more. And so what we take up here in Exodus is not really all that distant from us. I think the church in our land has become complacent, relaxed. Perhaps when it comes to spiritual things, we are idle. About the things of God, we're detached and disinterested. God uses persecution and suffering to... Discipline his people, to arouse his people, uh, to provide us clarity and focus about what are the things that are most important. Indeed, who the one is that we are to serve, even the Lord Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to use four main headings this morning. They follow from the text. First contact, yeah, there's kind of allusion to a certain movie series there. And Pharaoh strikes back. I'm sorry if that troubles you, but I hope it's helpful. And then foolishly, we see foolishly seeking relief from the enemy. And then fourthly, we'll look at how they turned on the Lord's messengers. So we have the first contact. Particularly, you think of Moses. He's been away 40 years. He's been away from Pharaoh's household. But now he comes. We're told in verse 1 that afterwards, that is after he met with his brother in the wilderness, they return to Pharaoh. They, they do not delay in the task that God has placed upon them. They came and they met with Pharaoh. They met with the leaders of Israel, and now they go in and they meet with Pharaoh. There's very real dangers in this engagement. Moses, remember, was a member of, house, of uh, Pharaoh's household, and he had struck down an Egyptian. There were those that recognized him. There, there was even a potentiality that there in the court uh, of Pharaoh, there could be those who say, oh, I remember you, a feeble old man of many years, and yet... Moses had been assured, those who are seeking your life, God assured him, are dead. 
I think of that echoes an interesting flipped parallel that it is Joseph and Mary who took take Israel, God's firstborn, Christ, into Egypt. When Herod seeks him, and then the message comes, those who are seeking your life are now dead and it's safe to return. And they go and settle in Nazareth. So here, Moses comes before Pharaoh. He comes into Pharaoh's courts with a confidence. You see him walking by faith. God has told him something, and Moses goes by faith to obey the Lord. He's been given a mission, and he will carry it out. The message that Moses brings, we understand he's speaking through Aaron, that they bring to Pharaoh is one that's at odd, at odds with Pharaoh. It strikes against his honor. Pharaoh is is a powerful king over probably the most powerful nation of that day. And he is being commanded by someone, let my people go. Release those whom you have in slavery. Let them go. It strikes at Pharaoh's honor. It also strikes at his profit margin. It gets at the bottom line. Pharaoh profits, Egypt profits, by the slave labor that they employ in and throughout the land. This is a blow to the economy. Let these people go. This great mass of millions of workers are to be released. Well, who is it that delivers the message? It's God's message. And that's Moses and Aaron are faithful. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. That is, all cap L-O-R-D, the covenant faithful Lord God of Israel. They're one who has proved themselves faithful, even in, in him visiting at this time, seeking out Moses, calling and commanding him to go to bring a message that God remembers them. Even as he had told Abraham, whom he had made the covenant with, that after 400 years of servitude, God would visit them and bring them out. The covenant faithful Lord. He brings this message. Notice it's not a request. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go. It's a command. You you understand that superiors don't make requests of inferiors. They issue commands. And Pharaoh, as powerful he is, certainly in his own mind, does not see himself as an inferior, someone less than anyone else. And yet the one who is speaking through Moses and Aaron is the creator and the sustainer. Pharaoh's heart beats because God commands it. That's encouraging to us as we think in our days. We see the oppressors. As we pray for the persecuted church, wherever it may be found, here at home and abroad, as certainly the oppression is much greater there, those who oppress, God sustains them. Even as Satan himself is a creature that can only do the will of God. And so God commands him. This label, or this title that Moses uses that God has given him, thus says the Lord God of Israel. This is the first time it's used in Scripture. Right here in the opening verse of chapter 5. The Lord God of Israel. Notice that God, the Lord, the covenant faithful Lord, identifies with his people. He says, he goes on to say, let my people go. What are these people? And think about God views them. He views them with his covenant love, the promises that he's made to Abraham. These are the descendants of Abraham. But how does Pharaoh view them? They're just slaves. They're, they're a poor people. They're a powerless people. 
I command it, and, and, and their children, their sons are thrown into the river. Very much on the face of the earth, they look like a motley crew. Remember in uh, Corinthians that uh, we heard, not many are wise, not many are powerful. You know, the, those whom God calls to himself, he does not call them because of stature and standing and position and prestige. He calls whom he will. And these people are of no stature. They're poor. They're slaves. They're powerless. Notice, then, what God expects from his people. It's in this command of Pharaoh, but you see that there's a truth here. He says, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. God expects his people to gather before him and worship. Uh, Israel is in, in a pagan land. They're surrounded by idols of every form and fashion, even as we are today. Oh, we may not drive past a shrine with some gold image of Buddha or some other vile god of men's creation, but certainly they're in the world. But idolatry is all around us. We dwell amongst the people, and yet we are to worship our God, even as we're called Lord's Day by Lord's Day, because. It reminds us who we are. It reminds us who God is. It, it reminds us of the landscape of how things truly are. This is what Asaph in Psalm 73 discovered. As he looked at the wicked and how they prospered and they were fat. He says they're so fat their eyes bulge out. And when it comes to their death, they seem to die at ease. And he said, my foot almost slipped. And then what was the corrective? It's the Sabbath. And he went to the temple. He went to the Lord's house. And he remembered their end. And so it is for us as we gather each Lord's Day. Remember who we are. We remember the promise that God's made to us. And indeed the end of the wicked around us. And that's not so we should mock or scoff over them. But we should be afraid of them. We should have compassion for them. That should also compel us to go back out into the fields that are white unto harvest. Compel us to pray as Jesus said that the Father, the pray to the Father, the Lord of the harvest, that He would raise up workers to go. We're God's people. And we're to worship Him. And it is a wonderful thing. Now notice that it's a feast. Do we view our weekly worship as a feast time? We have a bounty set before us. Uh, the word preached, the word portrayed, Christ is with us. We have a feast, a banquet of choice meats and, and fine wines that Christ is to his people. It's a time of celebration. It's a time that we meet with our God. We should view it that way. The children of Israel, they, they've lost sight of these things. They're a very mixed multitude. Many of them may be embracing the idols of Egypt because we find as we move on to the Exodus, they brought idols with them. And there's times where they're told to cast them aside and they, they bury them in the ground. They're a very mixed multitude. They need to go and have this feast with the Lord. God would have them to go where? That they would go three days. It's not said here, but they're going to go three days into the wilderness. That is an uninhabited place. The wilderness doesn't always mean a desert. There's a word for that in the original language. But it's, it's an uninhabited place. It's a desolate place. But you see, where we worship God does not make the worship significant. It's the one we meet with that makes the worship significant. We can worship God in the wilderness. We can worship Him in a lofty, well-built have a structure for that purpose. We can worship Him in a basement. We can worship Him in a cave, even as the church has and does to this day. But where God is with His people is a feast 
It is a celebration. Well, the first contact's been made with the enemy. Moses and Aaron have been faithful ambassadors. You remember what an ambassador does, children? He serves a king, and that king gives him a message. The ambassador's job is to take that message and declare it. He's not to explain it. He's not to negotiate it. He's to carry the message. And Moses and Aaron have been faithful to take the message to Pharaoh. What we see that follows is, I call it Pharaoh's major blunder. These, these verses, the opening chapter 5, set the stage for the rest of the book. The conflict's on. The two parties are engaged. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Look at proud a proud Pharaoh. He, he's proud. He's, he's boastful. He blasphemes. That is, he evil speaks. What does he say? And Pharaoh said, verse 2, Who is the Lord? Who is the covenant faithful Lord? Now this is a learned man. This man would not have been ignorant of Jacob and his twelve sons that came down into Egypt. He would not have been unaware of Joseph he would have something in his study of their history of the Pharaoh of those days. He rejected him. He cares not for that God. But he would not have been unaware of this name, the Lord God of Israel. What we see here is a sinful man. This man portrays the, the very picture of all sinners, dead in their trespasses, proud and arrogant, bold and confident. Who is the Lord? Who is this Christ? Who is a Jesus that says that to be repent ye and be converted that your sins may be blotted out? What sins? That's the voice of the mocker, and we see it here with Pharaoh so long ago. It would have been far better for Pharaoh and his nation if he had submitted at that point and obeyed. Even as it would be for a sinner who hears the gospel for the first time, to hear Jesus say, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Far, far better to do so, to obey, than to resist or to mock the holy God of heaven. What has your response been to the call of Christ? Has your response been to yield and to heed? Well, then you know that it's because the Holy Spirit has worked in you. It is only by the work of the Holy Spirit that a sinner can come unto God. Praise God for the work of the Holy Spirit. Praise God that He sends His Spirit through the Son into the lives of dead, rebellious sinners. Pharaoh is not such a man. This obstinacy, children, I want you to think about it. Particularly this is for older kids. Although sometimes you younger ones can be mighty, stiff-necked in your rebellion. Your mother or your father commands you to do something. And you just like, no. Not going to do it. Storm off, slam doors. Pharaoh's heart's not so far from any of us. Some of you adults sit here and you, you can remember events as children. Praise God for the mercy of God. Amen. Obstinate, blasphemous sinners. It's interesting, you think about Pharaoh's pride, you can imagine him, him thinking, you know, it's like, look at Israel. What kind of God do they have? They're my slaves. Because you see, in that day, people said time to think, well, if I'm victorious over this people, my God's better than their God. Their God didn't help them out here. Here's Israel. They're my slaves. They're in servitude under me. They're, they're doing all my will. 
So, so who's their God? Sometimes the world treats us that way. They say, well, if your God's so great and he's so good and so powerful, why are bad things in the world? Don't ever shrink back from such a thing. Remember what happened in the garden. Adam sinned. We're all sinners. And it was a curse for sin. And that curse is manifest all around us. You have an answer for that objection. And yet people will raise it. So Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let his rebel? You see, he's mocking the power of God. Little does he know. These will not be the words of Pharaoh down the road. Pharaoh's going to find out who the Lord God of Israel is and what his power is that he should be obeyed. But he does not know. He says even more, he says, I do not know the Lord. So true. Apart from the grace of God, no sinner knows the Lord. You may know of the Lord. Sinners hear of the Lord. As we proclaim and witness the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, people hear of it, but they don't know the Lord. Because remember Jesus' prayer in John 17.3, Jesus praying to the Father, says that this is eternal life, to know you. And we know the Father through the Son by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. That's why Christ came into the world, to open that door, to remove the problem, to deal with sin. Pharaoh knows nothing of that. And so we see in Pharaoh an obstinate refusal. Notice what he concludes with saying, I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. That's the song he's singing at this point. It will be different down the road. So what we see here is Pharaoh, a servant of the serpent. And so his words are a faint echo of Satan's. His message is the message of Satan, the diabolical one. Satan who set himself out to set himself above God. We hear that from Pharaoh. He wants to set himself. Who's this God? I don't know him. I don't care about him. I'm not concerned about him. So it is with many sinners who have spoken very similar words when they hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus said, come unto me. Take my yoke upon you. My burden is easy. Come to me and I will give you rest. You are troubled in the world. You have many troubles. Come to me, Jesus has said, and I will give you rest. And many of us boastful, proud sinners says, Nope, God, I'll find my own way to heaven. Well, as is so common today, even contrary to what people know is written on their hearts, there's, there's nothing after this life. You die and it's over. So eat, drink, and be married. For tomorrow you die. And yet Solomon, that wise man, said that the eternity is written on every heart. It's a point of engagement when we share the gospel. We appeal to that which is written on their heart, that truth that they suppress in unrighteousness. And we trust the Holy Spirit to work in them. The reality is Jesus is the only way to heaven. He is the truth proclaimed to us that we would know the will of the Father for our salvation. And in Him alone is their life. It is found in no other name under heaven but in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good news. We must not draw back from telling it to those around us who are perishing. No matter how obstinate, how proud, we proclaim and we pray. And we look to God to give the increase. So Moses and Aaron give Pharaoh one more opportunity to change his mind and avoid calamity for himself and his nation. Look at verse 3. So they said... 
Uh, this would probably be Moses telling Aaron what to say. That's the way God ordered it. They said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. You don't know him, but he's met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall on us with pestilence and with the sword. This time they make an appeal. Before it was, let my people go. They're trying a different approach. Notice, please. This is an entreaty. This is Moses and Aaron making a treaty. God has commanded it. They're saying, now look at us. We represent the people who serve you. Would you consider that you let us go? Why? Would you, can you have compassion? Why would you have compassion? Because our God has said, what? Lest he fall upon us with pestilence and the sword. Let us go. You see in that, Moses and Aaron understand the, the importance that God places upon worship. The keeping of the Sabbath. If you don't understand that, you haven't read the Old Testament. You look at what got Israel in trouble more times than just about anything else. It was a failure to keep the Sabbath. God is serious about his day and our keeping of the day. That's why we have that one commandment set there. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Well, they understand that. So the appeal is like, Pharaoh, think about it this way. If you don't let us go, you can lose your entire workforce. Yeah, we're your slaves. Well, if God strikes us with pestilence, that's disease and plague or the sword, and, and we're all dead, then what, what impact is that going to have? It's a, a little turn to have compassion, but also think about yourself. Would this reproach make any difference? No. It makes no difference. We shouldn't consider, secondly, Pharaoh strikes back, beginning in verse 4. Then the king of Israel said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. Here's a man unmoved, unchanged. He refuses to obey. He has no compassion. All that matters to him is that the people work, produce, production. Want the bottom line. Basically, he says, stop distracting the people with vain ideas about departing from Egypt. Stop teasing them, as it were, with the idea that they're going to be set free. Don't you know who I am? He even orders an 80-year-old man... And his older brother, get back to your work. What a man. This is the way tyrants behave. This man is ruthless and cruel. He serves Satan. My friend, Satan cares nothing for people. You see that manifest in Pharaoh. He cares nothing for people. He doesn't care about their well-being. He doesn't care if they die under his tyranny because they'll be gathered into the lake of fire that's prepared for him and his angels. As long as he can mock God and blaspheme God, all Satan cares about is his own glory. And you see that manifest here in Pharaoh, as well as other tyrants down through the history of man. This is what the multitude of oppressive dictators look like. They don't care about people. Look at communism. I read a fascinating book, The Communism, The Killingest Idea Ever. And it chronicles how through the history of communism over the last 125 years or so, multiple tens of millions have perished. Because the seed of the serpent doesn't care about life. It cares nothing about life. You see it here even... With Pharaoh. A 
I've made it clear from this pulpit many times. We all dwell either in the kingdom of light and life or in the kingdom of darkness. We dwell either under the command and the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, or we are serving Satan. And Satan is more than happy for sinners to believe they're serving themselves, they're living under themselves, that they're their own Lord and Master, because in the blindness of that they don't realize they're ultimately serving Satan. He's fine with that. But there's only one in. In this spiritual warfare, those who serve Satan will be cast into the lake of fire at the end of all the ages. You think about the malice of Satan. Would you have this one to be your king? Look at the book of Job. Look at what Job did with God's permission, God's allowance for God's purposes to Job. One man. Would you serve such a cruel taskmaster? I'll answer, yes, you would. That's the nature of our sinful hearts. And even us as believers, do we not get deceived by the temptations, the wiles of the devil? We get drawn off. We're enticed with some temptation and it looks alluring. But behind the curtain of that sin, there's destruction, there's punishment, there's harshness. That's what Solomon writes to the young man. You enter the door of the wayward wife. Her doorway is the gate right down to the pit of hell. Satan doesn't care. Well, you see that with Pharaoh. We're told that Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh's presence. And what happened? Pharaoh said, verse 5 is a shift. He's not speaking to Moses and Aaron now. He's told them, give back to your labor. He says, look. No, he's still speaking. And look, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their labor. He's saying, here's the matter. He understands it. You want my workforce to go away. There's, there's a host. There's a multitude of you. You want to take them away from your work. And so in verse 6, then Pharaoh, that same day, he's on a mission. He is determined. That same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers saying, now let me just explain. The taskmasters are Egyptian overlords. You might say they, they answer to Pharaoh. And they are over the Hebrews. The officers, as you read on in the text, becomes clear. They are Hebrew, we'll say, foremen. They're overseers. These are probably the prominent men, the the elders of the tribes, who have been set in these positions to have the distribution of commands going down, that the word should go to all. Pharaoh addresses both the Egyptian taskmasters and the officers of the Hebrews, saying, You shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. A straw was used, placed in the bricks with a firing. It gave the clay bricks strength. They probably used a straw and other stubble to fire the bricks in the kilns to make them hard so that they could be built with. And, and bricks are strong. I don't think we put, we don't put straw in bricks today. You can find older structures where you find that. But you, know, you go out, look at the, it's the Empire State Building, the entire exterior is brick. And, there's other, you know, and that bottom brick, how much weight is sitting on that? They're making bricks because Pharaoh wants to build structures for his own glory. And so he says, you're not going to give the people the straw anymore. Verse 8, here's the, he's the up. You shall lay on them the quota of bricks that they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. If they got this time to come and complain, if they got times to dream and imagine going off into the wilderness, they've got too much time on their hand. 
They're idle, therefore they cry out saying, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men that they may make may labor in it. Let them not regard false works, words. How's it going? Moses came from the wilderness, comes with a message from God. He shows the leaders of the people of the people signs and wonders. It tells them the word of God they're excited about. They fell down in worship. And now the engagements happen. They've gone to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, I'll show you. And he strikes hard. He makes their daily task that's already difficult even more difficult. He ups the ante and makes it much more difficult. So in verse 10, we find the message is delivered. This, this new work order. And the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people saying, Thus says Pharaoh. I remember a little while ago we had, Thus says the Lord. Here's Pharaoh and his boasting. Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go, get yourself straw where you can find it. They're not even pouring it in the right direction. It's like you're going to find it here and there. No, just go where you can find it. Yet none of your work shall be reduced. If you as one worker were supposed to make 100 bricks a day, you're still supposed to make 100 bricks a day, and you've got to find the straw that is necessary to make it. The task got harder. It became impossible. There's no way you can spend the time to find the straw, and they're looking for stubble now. They're looking for anything that will work. There's no way you can do that and still produce 100 bricks a day. That was Pharaoh's purpose. And we find in verse 12, the people tried. Go get yourself straw where you can find it, yet none of your work shall be reduced. So the peoples were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. Consider, all through all the land, it's a big land. They've got to gather out, bring it, call it back. People are taken away from making brick because they're busy looking for straw and stubble. And then verse 13. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. And then what happened? Verse 14. The officers of the children of Israel, these are the Hebrew foremen, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters set over them, were beaten and were asked by the taskmasters, Why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as before? This is what oppression looks like. This could be the oppression that comes upon us because we follow Christ, forced into servitude. It is true in many parts of the world today. We have brothers and sisters who are at the bottom of the food chain, so to speak. They are forced to labor, cruel and harsh treatment. This book is helpful for us to understand how to persevere in such things. But we're going to see the false step. These overlords, the taskmasters, they, they have no concern. Where is the quota? Well, in verse 15, then we move to foolishly seeking relief from the enemy. This is the situation, and yet in verse 15, what do we find? Then the officers, these are the Hebrew foremen of the children of Israel. There's the clarity. And they cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why are you dealing thus with your servants? These men go to Pharaoh. Perhaps it's in their mind that the taskmasters have come up with this. It's some cruel trick. Uh, maybe there's a miscommunication from Pharaoh that Pharaoh said something else, but the taskmasters got it wrong. And so they go right to Pharaoh and they make their appeal. The question is, why? You know what the answer is? 
Pharaoh's a cruel tyrant. He doesn't care about people. He just wants production. And then they make their appeal. Don't you see? They're, they're, they're no longer bringing a straw, and yet we've got to find it. We've got to haul it, and, and we've still got to make as many bricks as we made before. Pharaoh, come on, this is unreasonable. And then look at what they say at the end of verse 16. But the fault is in your own people. See, they see that the taskmasters are really the problem. Pharaoh, look at what's going on. You're a just man. Would you not do something? They don't know the true nature of Pharaoh, even as they come to him. You can't negotiate with a tyrant. As Christians, we know that. You don't negotiate with Satan. He's a cruel taskmaster. You don't negotiate with sin. To, to negotiate with sin, when tempted with sin, is sin. We're to flee from it. And yet we have so often, we negotiate and we justify and we rationalize and reason. And it's all destruction. It's all harsh and cruel. We dare not do it. It's foolishness. And so we see here, Pharaoh hasn't changed. Indeed, it will be some time before Pharaoh is broken. And it will be broken by God. The, the liberty of the captives, the exodus, the setting free of Israel to go out was not through negotiation. It was through the strong and the mighty hand of the living God of heaven who taught Pharaoh where he stood on God's earth. Pharaoh wants work. He wants production. He says, stop complaining. Matthew Henry says here, as they've gone to him, Matthew Henry says, wickedness Proceeds from the wicked. And you, what can you expect from unrighteous men but more unrighteousness? That's what we find here. Well, where are these evil foremen supposed to go? The, the situation's impossible. The conditions are severe. What are they going to go? Who should they turn to? Well, they turn to the Lord's messengers. Fourthly, notice that as they came out, verse 20. Then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them. Now, the Hebrew is a little bit difficult to translate here as who's standing there. Um, some translate it as to say they stood there waiting for Moses and Aaron. I think the new King James captured it. And I think what we see is the sovereignty of God. In his providence, he's bought Moses and Aaron. They probably heard that the foremen of the Israelites have gone in to meet with Pharaoh and they're there to see how did it go. They're there to meet with them. Well, there they are. What do they get? Who do the foremen meet when they leave the palace? Moses and Aaron. And they lay it on Moses and Aaron. Verse 21, And they said to them, this is the foreman speaking to Moses and Aaron, Let the Lord, that is the covenant faithful Lord, look on you and judge. They, they take up a lofty position. They're saying, the Lord's on our side. Let the Lord judge between you and me. Because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh, in the sight of his servants, to put a sword in their hand to kill us. What do we see here? It's something we saw with Moses in the wilderness when God commissions him to go. Immature faith. Or perhaps no faith at all. Remember where Israel is. Remember how long they've been there. These men have lost sight of much of the truth about who their God is and His abilities to deliver and how He even saved them as a people through a famine because Joseph was there to interpret the dream because God and Abraham, they've lost sight of these things. These are men without faith or a very immature faith and they're in despair of the suffering that is upon them and the people. And so, who do they blame? Moses and Aaron. 
And they even blame them because they're appealing to God. Let God judge between you, Moses. Where is this message you came up from? We're not so sure about it. We're not ready to bow and worship God anymore. You're the fault. You've turned Pharaoh against us. You made our life hard. For many of you, hearken back to the day of your conversion. You've heard the gospel. Christ has brought you to Himself. Your sins are forgiven. You're heaven bound. You're overjoyed. You're exuberant. What a glorious position. You worship God with delight and then you go back to your daily life and you find it's difficult. Some things are even more difficult. Even good things. The world is against you. You discover your flesh and it's corrupt appetites and and you've got to deal with that. Jesus says you need to put those things to death. Take up your cross daily and follow Me. And and the devil's not necessarily He Himself but His men. You're you're harassed on every side. It's like, wait a minute. What is this I signed up for? There's that moment for many is living out the Christian life. The sanctification part begins. And it's difficult. And maybe you run into that minister or that, that godly friend and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I, this Christian life you're telling me, I, I, would, I just signed up for this. I wasn't expecting this. And so discipleship begins where it goes to another place that we learn that being a Christ follower is not easy. Jesus said, they persecuted me. You can be confident they would persecute you. The Hebrews have got a lot to learn. Yes, the Lord's going to teach Pharaoh in Egypt, but He will also be teaching His people, even up to the time of the Exodus and from then onward. Isn't that our impulse to blame others? Isn't that what happened in the garden? God came to Adam. Why are you hiding? Well, that woman that you made for me, this the first impulse of the sinner's heart is to blame others. These Foreman, their response should have been, we, we need to convene and call upon the name of our God. We need to seek the Lord and entreat Him for deliverance. But they, they don't know about the covenant faithfulness of the Lord their God. These are the things that need to leave, learn. There's something in this verse 21 that these men fail to see who the real enemy is. Is that not our problem sometimes? We lose sight of who the real enemy is. Some of you have been with me. You know, I've been here long enough. You remember the book of Judges? Some of those judges were not only you know, very commendable lot, but remember about Samson? Remember what I said about Samson? Samson served as a mirror with all his faults. Israel, look at Samson. This is you. But Samson did something that the Israelites did not. Samson remembered who the enemy was. It was the Philistines. And he waged war against them. And so often we lose sight of who the enemy is in waging war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Not with one another. That's what we see with these men here. You see, God's plan is in progress. This, this opening account. Uh, the engagement is on. Pharaoh knows what's coming. Well, he knows what's required. He doesn't know what's coming. But the engagement's taken place. God's made it clear. Pharaoh, I'm not asking you. I'm telling you, let my people go. Pharaoh says, oh yeah? I'm not listening. I don't care who you are. And so we can say the stage is set. The pieces are set. And we're going to watch play out. This is where we're going. How do you think it will turn out? Who's going to prevail? 
Well, surely I hope you know that the Lord God's going to prevail. You see that so it was from the beginning with the great conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There in the garden, God, after Adam and Eve sinned, he proclaimed to them there would be a seed of the woman who would come who would crush the serpent's head, although he would be bruised in the heel. That is the Son of God who came, God incarnate, born of the virgin, living a sinless life, dying a sinner's death to redeem his people from sin, death, and the grave, to receive in full measure the wrath of God and thus propitiate, take away the wrath of God from upon his people. He has won the victory. Therefore, God has given him a name above every name. God has seated him at his right hand. Christ, the God-man, the Son of God who came from glory is now seated there in our humanity, a glorified humanity at the right hand of the Father, and God has given it to him to rule the nations. It's not, was it one of the, somebody said, there's not one square millimeter of all the earth or of all of creation, but the Christ calls it mine. So we can rest in him. We can have confidence in him. Well, as we conclude, Moses and Aaron, they went in. Uh, we don't know what their expectations were, right? You know, Moses may have had some concern. Uh, he grew up in Pharaoh's household. He's been away 40 years, but he kind of knows how things function in Egypt. Uh, he was, should have been aware of the, the, the arrogance. Maybe that's something that was in, within him, that he struck the Egyptian who was beating the Hebrew. But things are not going as they expected. God's visiting. I've heard their cries. I've come down. I've come to deliver them. They went in to deliver the message. And things got worse. God's ways are not our ways, are they? They are higher than our ways. So imagine if Pharaoh just said, okay, go. There wouldn't be much in the book of Exodus, would there? We wouldn't have this book that teaches us about our own uh, spiritual growth and grace and, and the process of sanctification that God is doing in us. This book is very helpful for us. For the Exodus that is here is a picture of the exodus that Christ brings about, bringing his people out of the world to the Father. We are justified in Jesus Christ. We're saved by faith in him. All his benefits and blessings come to him. The work on the cross, the work that he came to do becomes ours. When we are united to him by faith, the fullness of what Christ has accomplished is ours. And now the work we're positionally, we're justified. But sanctification begins. We're holy in the Lord, but God would have his people be holy. That we are to live holy lives. And that process begins. And it's a long, hard road, as many of you can testify to. But that's not a reason to shrink back. To go forth in the strength and the power of our God, knowing that he is faithful to bring us through to the end. As a church, we are to stand firm on God's word in our day. You know what that means? We're going to be out of step with the world. We're not going to be ready to embrace their insanity and absurdity and the lethality of the day in which we dwell with abortion of innocent children. We're not going to embrace that. We're going to stand against it. We're not going to lie about whether someone's a he when they're actually a she. We're not going to engage in that foolishness. We're going to stand for what is truth. 
Because truth sets us free. We walk in the fullness of what Christ has accomplished. We have a confidence in our God. We are the children of the living God and we are dwelling amongst darkness and we shine forth the light of Christ. We have to oppose all the insanity of our day. A redefinition of marriage. A redefinition of even sex with transgenderism. We oppose all these things. We don't accommodate them. We don't cooperate. We're not going to be complicit. We stand for the truth and we tell people of Christ. And we will be oppressed. But we do not despair. Christ has won the victory. Not to be too severe. I don't know. It's going to come to the point where we're going to be set before the burning first as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were. But if that's the case, if it's the guillotine or the sword or some other way that they wanted to take our lives, we say, my God will deliver me out of your hand. He may deliver me even through whatever you're seeking to impose on my bed. If you prevail, my God will deliver me out of your hand. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We are secure in Him. And we need not fear the world. Whatever the oppression, Christ has overcome the world. Amen? Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we rejoice with these good words of encouragement and comfort. We thank you, Lord, for the honesty and the integrity of the accounts uh, that you tell us of our own nature. As we see men of faith, yet they stumble in the way. Lord, we, we identify with that. And we have hope even for ourselves. And, Lord, when we see the church sore oppressed, we hear how you have delivered and rescued here. Lord, we are encouraged even with that. Lord, bless us and strengthen us. Through the Lord Jesus Christ and the very person of the Holy Spirit within us to live for your glory in our day. That Christ may have the preeminence and that all glory should have redound to him in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.